Well, currently we're in the middle of a three-part series. I guess you could call it my uh, farewell series, since as you know, next Sunday will be my last. In this series, what I'm doing is I've chosen three passages that really are dear to my own heart and that I trust will communicate to you my desire for you as I prepare to leave. I desire you to know and to show Jesus' transforming power, which we considered last time. How I desire you to always be listening to the life-giving voice of Jesus, which we'll consider next week. And how I desire you to rest joyfully and confidently in the supremacy of Jesus which is what we're considering this morning as we look at Philippians chapter 3 and verses 1 to 11. So if you have your Bibles, Philippians 3, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, or my dear family, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Gaining confidence and growing in joy. That's what Paul desires for his readers. And in his desire for this, he does four things in this passage. In verse 1, he issues a repeated call. In verses 2 and 3, he makes a stark contrast. In verses 4 to 6, he recounts his own past story. And then in verses 7 to 11, he teaches us how to do some Christian accounting. A call, a contrast, a story of the past, and some Christian accounting. And all for the purpose of showing us the way to gain confidence and grow in joy. 
So first then, let's just jump on in. First then, Paul issues a repeated call. And it's the call to rejoice. Joy is the common thread that runs through this letter to the Philippians. Again and again, Paul urges his readers to join him in his own rejoicing. Rejoicing not only when times are pleasant, but when they're also painful. You know, that raises the question, doesn't it? How can we experience and express joy when trials and troubles abound? Well, how could Paul? How could Paul, who when he wrote this letter, did so from a prison cell, facing the possibility of execution? Paul was in a situation of suffering, and yet even here, he rejoiced. Even in chains, he celebrated. And he could. He could because he knew. He recognized in light of the gospel that true and lasting joy isn't dependent on on the fickle foundation of our circumstances, but it's dependent on the firm foundation of Christ. The source of Paul's joy didn't lie in his changing circumstances, but in his unchanging Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul knew, he wants us, his readers, to know as well. And that's why when he calls us to rejoice, he adds the prepositional phrase, phrase, in the Lord. It's not some general, just just be happy. No, it's rejoice in the Lord. My friends, Christianity is an invitation to joy. It's a call to rejoice, and specifically to rejoice in the Lord who first rejoices in us. How do we know Jesus rejoices in us? Because He's done everything necessary to have us as His own. Jesus, in joy, left heaven's beauty to pursue us in our brokenness. In joy, He lived the life each of us have failed to live. In joy, He willingly put Himself on the cross, bearing our shame, becoming our sin, and suffering the judgment of God that we deserved. In joy, He went into the horror of death in order to conquer death for us. And in joy, He's bestowed upon us His dearest friend, His eternal friend, the Holy Spirit. The one who in coming to us actually brings us into the eternal, eternally joyful life of the trying God. Jesus rejoices in you. He rejoices in claiming you as His own. Even now, as we hear from the prophet Zephaniah, he sings over you in gladness. You are the joy of Jesus' divine heart. Jesus relishes you. And he does so not because he needs you, but simply because he wants you. In his overflowing joy, he made you and he redeemed you. He bled and died because you, you are His beloved. God in Christ rejoices in you, and the proof of His divine joy is the cross. 
Christ's cross is God's definitive demonstration that He really does rejoice in you. And here's the point. We will never rejoice in the Lord, as Paul calls us to. We will never rejoice in the Lord unless we first grasp or better, unless we're grasped by the gracious reality that He first rejoices in us. Only when our hearts are gripped by His eternal rejoicing in us will we begin to rejoice in Him in return. Which means the call to rejoice, Paul's call to us to rejoice in the Lord is first and foremost a call to rest more and more in Jesus' joy in us. It's His joy in us. Rather than our fickle feelings or our changing circumstances that alone can give us solid joy and lasting pleasure, that alone can lead us to rejoice in Him even amidst the real pain and perplexity of life. Now, If anything, Paul was a realist. He knew his his call to us to rejoice in the Lord needed to be heard, not simply one time, but again and again. He knew that we often lose sight of Jesus' joy in us. At the heart of the gospel is that Jesus delights in you. But that thing is the very thing that's so hard to believe. And especially when life seems to be falling apart. How could he love me? How could he take joy in me? And Paul knew that we easily lose sight of Jesus' joy. And that's why he says, it's no trouble for me to go on repeating this call again and again and again. He knew we needed to hear it on a daily basis. We need one another to say, to one another again and again. Rejoice in the Lord. We need to hear this call amidst our changing circumstances. And as Paul says here, we need it for our own safety. It is safe for us to hear this good call to rejoice in the Lord. And in the context of this letter, safety from what? Well, in particular, safety from any teaching or belief that claims that the Lord's joy, God's joy in us, is somehow dependent on us. Dependent on, say, our pedigree or our performance. You see, in the historical situation of this letter, Paul knew that an insidious teaching was about to arrive in the city of Philippi. A teaching that claimed that God delights in us and accepts us on the basis of our religious performance. In particular, it was a teaching that claimed that no one can be sure of the Lord's saving joy unless they get circumcised or keep the law. Specifically, if a Gentile believer didn't Judaize, begin to live like a Jew, then they remain nothing more than a despised dog, a mongrel in the eyes of God. Unless you add a Jewish-shaped pedigree, and performance to your faith in Jesus, you can never really be sure that God rejoices in you. This was the essence of this false teaching. And I trust you can see the problem with it. That if Jesus' joy 
which is God's joy, is somehow dependent on us, then where's our focus going to be? It's going to be on us. It's going to be on ourselves rather than in Christ alone. And if our focus is on ourselves, we'll never rejoice in the Lord. Instead, we'll rejoice in ourselves or possibly despise ourselves. That we've somehow done enough or we've not done it done enough to gain God's approval and joy. And to bring out the problem of this teaching, the second thing Paul does in verses 2 to 3 is he makes a stark contrast between this false teaching and true Christianity. And in making the contrast, Paul warns us against this false teaching by using really some of his strongest language. Some of the strongest language you'll find in his letters. He writes, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the mutilators of the flesh. Strong language and thick with irony. Look out for the dogs. And here the dogs aren't Gentile believers as these teachers claimed. No, the dogs here are those who claim that the only way one can be clean before God is by your performance. And here's Paul's point. These false teachers, most certainly Jews, had so distorted the in Christ alone gospel that they become like the very ones they despised pagan unbelievers. At the same time, these false teachers were nothing more than evildoers. They boasted that they were law keepers. Paul says in reality, they were evildoers because they overturned the only way a person can actually keep the law, and that is by trusting in Christ alone. And in insisting that one must be circumcised to know the joy of the Lord, all they were really doing was mutilating people's bodies. For circumcision is of no value in gaining the joy of the Lord that alone is sufficient to save us, redeem us wholly and completely. The marks of any teaching, any belief that focuses us on ourselves rather than on Christ alone, well, it's destructive. It isn't healing. Rather, it destroys And to make this clear, Paul goes on to highlight the marks of true Christianity, of true Christians. He writes in verse 3, We, that is, believers in Christ alone, are the true circumcision. That is, the true people of God, the people in whom the Lord rejoices, the people who've been set apart and brought in through Jesus being cut off on the cross. We are only God's people in Christ alone, as we sang earlier. And as the true people of God, we worship by the Spirit. We glory in Christ Jesus alone, and we put no confidence in ourselves, in our flesh. We glory and rejoice in Jesus, and we do so not in the power of our performance, our religious performance, No, we we worship by the power of the Spirit, the one who by grace through faith has brought us into the very joy of Jesus. It's because of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done sufficiently for our salvation, that we in turn are to learn to put no confidence, absolutely no confidence in our often overinflated selves. In the light of Christ, we now 
are beginning to see, this is the way grace works, this is the way the gospel works, in, in the light of Christ, we're beginning to see the foolishness, the foolishness of trying to build our lives on our flesh, say on our upbringing, on the color of our skin, on our nationality, on our bank account, on our politics, or on our performance. Our flesh is useless it is absolutely useless in giving us solid joy and stable confidence. Because here's the reality. When we trust in ourselves, we're being robbed. We're being robbed of true joy and true confidence. Trusting in ourselves is like a thief that comes to steal. Self-righteousness is a thief that rips joy and confidence away from us, as is just outright sin. These things promise joy and confidence. They leave us empty. And to help us see this clearly, Paul goes on in verses 4 to 6 to tell his own story, his own past pre-Christian story, the story of how he used to put confidence in his own flesh. And here's his point. If these false teachers want to play the game of putting confidence in the flesh, well, just know, says Paul, I can play it better. Verse 4, I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, if it were really up to us to secure the saving joy of God, then Paul says, I would have gained it. My pedigree was stellar. I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. I belonged to the people of Israel. I was from the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe that produced Israel's first king. My namesake is that man. He was Saul. That's his Jewish name. He adds, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, my mother tongue is the original language of the Jews. There's other Jews. They don't speak Hebrew. I speak Hebrew. If we could gain God's saving joy through our pedigree, then Paul says, I would have done it. For humanly speaking, Paul's pedigree was perfect. But not only did Paul have a stellar pedigree, his performance was also stellar. He writes, I was a Pharisee. I belonged to the purity party, the party most concerned with law keeping. I was zealous, so zealous that I persecuted the church, persecuted those who believed in Christ alone. And then he adds, I was blameless under the law. And by this, he doesn't mean that he was sinless. Rather, he means that whatever the law required of him outwardly, he did it. In terms of his former life, his pre-Christian life, Paul had every reason to boast and be confident in himself. Confident that God was pleased with him and that God rejoiced in him. But what was once the case is no longer so for Paul. And that leads to the last thing he does in this passage. And this is where he actually teaches us. And I know not all of us are math people, so we may not like this one. He teaches us how to do some Christian accounting. The sort of accounting that alone can give us joy and confidence. You see, in Paul's pre-Christian days, he saw himself as a good theological accountant. When he added up his pedigree and his performance, he counted it all as what? Sheer gain. As gaining God's rejoicing over him. All these things he added to the credit side of his life ledger. 
But now these former things no longer added up as they once did. What he once saw as only credit, he now saw as only debit. The question is, what led Paul to count all his former gain as now being nothing more than sheer loss? What was the fact that he had met Christ? And in meeting Christ, he met the one who was truly and divinely better. You see, behind all Paul says, as he finishes out this passage in verses 7 to 11, is what one commentator calls Paul's Damascus Road crash. See, on the Damascus Road, as the zealous Saul was seeking to persecute the church, he was encountered, encountered by the risen Lord Jesus. And in being encountered by Jesus, Paul's life was turned upside down, or better, right side up. On the road to Damascus, Paul met the one whose pedigree was actually better because he met the eternal Son of God. On the Damascus road, Paul met the one whose performance was better because he met the one who was not only outwardly obedient, but fully obedient, obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. On the Damascus road, Paul met the one whose ultimate position was better, for he met him who's now exalted to the highest place and bearing the greatest name. It was in light of meeting the risen Jesus that Paul now counted and continued to count his former confidence as nothing but loss. And he did so because Christ, Christ was now his true and lasting gain. Listen to how he puts this in verses 7 to 8. But whatever gain I had, I now counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In light of Christ, Paul now counted his personal pedigree and performance as nothing more than one big pile of poop. That's a little gross. Well, that's, that's actually how we could translate the word rubbish. For the word Paul uses is actually the crass word for excrement. In light of Christ, Paul now counted everything about his life apart from Christ, outside of Christ, as human waste. Apart from Christ, he realized that all he was doing, all he was doing was building his life on a dunghill of death. Paul's pedigree, Paul's performance, in light of Christ, in in comparison to the surpassing worth of Christ, he now realized it was pointless. His story, his story was without meaning apart from Christ. The story of the one who, although he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God as something to cling to or brag about, which is exactly what Paul was doing in all of his life. He now meets Jesus, God in the flesh, the God who doesn't brag about being God. Rather, because Jesus is God, He joyfully humbled Himself 
by becoming a servant. And as a servant, he gladly, think about it, gladly gave up his life for his lost people. This is the story of Christ. The story of God in the flesh. And in meeting Christ, Paul embraced and began to embody Jesus' story as his own so that he no longer clung to his past pedigree and performance. No, he gave it all up. He gave it all up because he found that being in Christ was worth it. Belonging to Christ was worth it. Having and knowing Christ's joy, the joy that led Jesus to the cross, was now becoming Paul's greatest joy and confidence in life. From being found in Christ, he knew he had been graciously given, graciously gained God's three greatest gifts. God's three greatest gifts, the gifts He speaks about as He concludes this passage. What are these gifts? The gifts that are given to all who belong to Jesus, who trust in Jesus alone. Well, first, Paul says he was given the gift of Christ's righteousness. In being found in Christ, in having His identity now rooted in Christ, and rather than being rooted in Himself, Paul discovered the liberating truth that he no longer had to work up and maintain a feeble righteousness of his own. A righteousness that ebbed and flowed and that could and would falter. No, now in Christ he had a righteousness from God. A righteousness that came not because of Paul's faithfulness, but because of Christ's faithfulness on his behalf. And how do he receive this righteousness? How do we receive this righteousness? Well, by resting in Jesus alone. Jesus and Jesus alone is the gift of having a right standing with God now and forever. Of knowing that you are fully forgiven of every sin, big or small. That you are truly accepted by God. You are assured in Christ alone that God rejoices in you. Only in belonging to Jesus can we know God's eternally joyful smile. His smile that says, I do love you. I do want you. I am committed to you. So committed that I sent my beloved son to die for you. And I've given you my own spirit. Through faith in Christ alone, we are given the joy-inducing and confidence-gaining gift of having a right standing with God that is not built on our do's or don'ts, but on what Christ alone has done. You see why we're to rejoice in Jesus? <laughs> to put our hope in Jesus? You see why that's why, why we're to get off the treadmill of trying to earn or maintain God's favor? We already have it. You already have it in the gift of Christ. So the first gift, the gift of God's righteousness in Christ. Second, Paul says, he, he was given in Christ the gift of ongoing transformation. Verse 10, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. You see, after meeting Christ, 
Paul's greatest delight was no longer showing himself, but knowing and showing Christ, of becoming like Christ more and more. And how do we become more and more like Christ? Well, there's only one pattern. One pattern, death and resurrection. Or as the text says, through the pattern of resting in the power of Jesus' resurrection so that we might more and more share in His sufferings. My friends, we can't die to ourselves apart from the power of Christ's resurrection. Put another way, because we know Christ's sufferings weren't in vain, because we know His sufferings didn't keep Him in the grave, we can trust that all of our sufferings and losses in this life are not in vain either. Rather, we can trust, even rejoice, that the God who raised Jesus is at work in our sufferings for our good. The good of making us more and more like Jesus, which is God's eternal purpose. Paul says he willingly suffered the loss of all things because he knew that that loss was actually the pathway to becoming more and more like Jesus. Paul was in a love affair because that's what Christianity is. Jesus' love for you that His love might actually grow, even create a love in your heart for Him. My friends, the risen Lord who loves you and rejoices over you is at work, always. He is at work in your sufferings for the purpose of transforming you, your life, into His own image. And it's only in knowing this that we can begin to have confidence and joy to actually embrace our sufferings and to do so not for suffering's sake, but for whose sake? His, to suffer for Him who through His own suffering for us has actually accomplished our redemption. One more gift, and we'll conclude. And it's the gift of, of the hope of future resurrection. You, you see, the goal of present righteousness that we have in Christ and the gift of ongoing transformation reaches its culmination in our final resurrection. It's the hope of one day seeing Jesus and being like Jesus in such a way that our whole selves, body and soul, will be made new. And knowing this is the ultimate goal, Paul says he was willing to embrace any means possible to get there. And that didn't mean he was relying on his own means. No, it meant he would rely on any and all of Christ's means, even when that included suffering, trials, trouble difficulty, disappointment. He would rely on any and all of Christ's means, and all means are at Christ's disposal because He is the Lord. He would rely on Christ's means to get Him there. Where He once relied on Himself to attain the resurrection of the dead, Paul now relied solely on Christ, who Himself had already attained it when He burst forth from that grave. And the resurrection Jesus attained he will one day give to us. He will one day give to us at His return. My friends, by grace alone, through faith alone, Paul was found in Christ. He was righteous in Christ. 
He was being renewed by Christ. And one day he would share in Christ's resurrection fully and completely. And because this is so, Christ was his confidence. Christ was his assurance. Christ was his satisfaction. And Christ was his joy. So what about you? What about us? Is Christ our confidence? Is Christ our assurance? Is Christ our satisfaction? Is Christ our hope and joy? Or are we still looking elsewhere? I was not going to cry until next week, so... As I do prepare to leave, my desire is that you individually, in your families, in the whole of your life, that you would always rest and rejoice in Christ alone. The one who for the joy set before Him endured the cross for your salvation. He, He alone is God's gift. His greatest gift. God's gift to you because God has given His best. Our response should be, let us relish Jesus. Let us rest in Jesus. Let us rest confidently and joyfully in His eternal love for us. Because here's the wonder. Jesus, who is God, did not love you begrudgingly. He loved you joyfully and eternally, knowing everything about you, every mistake you would make, every failure you would would do. He knew it all. He knew it all from eternity. And yet, it is His joy to call you His own. Therefore, let us rejoice in Him and find our confidence in Him. Let us pray. Our Father, my simple prayer is let it be so. Amen and amen in our lives. We pray this for Christ's sake. We pray by your Spirit that we would rejoice in Him, relish Him, because He is our all in all. Amen.